Queen Elizabeth II reigned over the United Kingdoms and the Commonwealth for 70 years, making her the second longest reigning monarch in history. She is remembered for her sense of duty and her devotion to a life of service, which made her a beloved and respected figure worldwide. However, her legacy is not all good, as she is also remembered as being a passionate supporter of horse racing, thus contributing more than anyone else to giving a cover of prestige to a horrific industry. In footage provided by the Telegraph years ago, she is seen visiting her stables and saying something quite peculiar at the sight of one of her horses. Quote, I often wonder what goes through her head. To answer the Queen's wonderment, I have with me Patrick Betuelo and Nicole Arcello. Patrick is the founder and president, and Nicole, the executive director of the animal rights organization, Horse Racing Wrongs. The organization's mission statement reads, Horse Racing Wrongs is a non-profit committed to ending the cruel and deadly horse racing industry in the United States. Patrick, Nicole, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. So let's dive right in with a question related to what the Queen was thinking and asking. Can you take us through the life journey of a horse distant to horse racing? And I'm thinking from the birth of the horse to its retirement. Sure. So the the various breeds that are used in horse racing, uh, mainly thoroughbreds, quarter horses, and standard breds, are, are bred for one purpose, and that is to get them on the track so they can start earning for their humans. Um, so the, the cruelty really starts at a very, very young age. So anywhere between six months and a year of age, these horses are forever separated from their mothers and herds, and then they are... Uh, broken, which is an industry term meaning to be made pliant and submissive. And at that point, they are thrust into the horse racing industry. The uh, the abuse only uh, exacerbates from there. Uh, in nature, horses fully mature, don't fully mature until the age of six. So their, their bones are not done growing. Their growth plates are not done fusing until around five or six years of age. Horse racing, on the other hand, takes 18-month-old horses, which on the maturation chart is a rough equivalent of a kindergartner or first grader, and they put them into intensive training. It's there that the uh, incessant grinding of these unformed bodies begins, and this is all done with an eye toward racing them at two, again, years before their bodies are fully mature. So this is what we, we see in the necropsies when we get full necropsies through our FOIA requests uh, with the racing commissions around the country. Uh, we see four, three, even two-year-old horses. These are pubescents, adolescents at best, dying with chronic conditions like osteoarthritis and degenerative joint disease. Sometimes it's so bad that it's in all four limbs. And this is just, again, a testament to the that grinding of these unformed bodies that the industry uh, puts these, these horses through. Um, they are raced again at, at the age of two. Uh, of course, there's the, the killing that goes on at the track or on the track, but um, 
Something that a lot of people don't think about is the everyday, the day in, day out life of a horse. So as a rule, these animals are kept locked in tiny 12 by 12 stalls for over 23 hours a day by themselves. Social isolation and deprivation. These are naturally social herd animals and they are kept locked in these tiny stalls for 23 hours plus a day. Um, so we see with the horses uh, the same kinds of stereotypies or vices, abnormal behaviors that we used to see with the ringwood elephants, for example, the, the bobbing, the swaying, the weaving for horses, the uh, kicking, digging, a self-mutilation. They do what's called wind sucking, which is uh, they grab onto whatever they can find in the stall and suck in air through their mouths. This is clear, unequivocal evidence of emotional and mental duress that these animals are under. And it's something that most people don't think about. Um, when we testified uh, before the New York State Senate in 2019, uh, along with us was a prominent equine veterinarian here in upstate New York, Dr. Craig Kulikowski, and he likened this to keeping a child locked in a four by four closet for 23 hours a day. So that should really bring it home to your listeners. So it's that day in and day out cruelty of confinement and, and negation. All their natural instincts and desires are being thwarted. They're not allowed to be a horse. Um, they are, of course, drugged and doped. Most people know about that. Um, they are whipped. Again, that's right there in full public view. Uh, something that a lot of people don't think about are the bits. So a bit is a, uh, a chunk of metal wedged into the soft palate of the horse's mouth. And it's uh, another means of control. It's attached to the uh, the reins, and this is another way for the jockey to control the horses. Well, not only does that cause pain in and of itself, it's a chunk of metal in the horse's mouth, um, but, and this is something we, we found out uh, last summer, we were protesting out in front of Saratoga Racecourse, and a prominent uh, professional photographer was there taking shots of us, and she was sympathetic to our cause, and she said, I was, I'm going into the track, and maybe take some shots of the fans. Is there anything you'd like me to look for in particular? And Nicole asked her to take pictures of the horse's heads and specifically the paraphernalia on the heads. Um, so she took these really strong, impactful photos and we see animal abuse, but of course I always try to get expert testimony. So I reached out to our advisory board, a prominent animal behaviorist, uh, Dr. Nicholas Dodman, who is a retired Tufts professor and he says, it's a little out of my wheelhouse. Let me uh, reach out to a, a colleague of mine from Tufts who specializes in equine ear, nose, and throat. So this man who was retired was a little re reluctant at first. We are an animal rights organization, um, needless to say, and he didn't want to necessarily be associated with that. And I said, Dr. Cook, all we're looking for is your expert opinion on what you're seeing in these photographs. He came back with this devastating statement, Ryan. He talked about um, something I didn't know myself, that that horses are obligate nose breathers. So in nature, if they're running, they're maintaining a tight lip seal. They're not bringing in any air through their mouths. He said all those horses racing that day at Saratoga Racecourse, perhaps the top track in the entire country, are going to have these feelings of asphyxiation, suffocation, and he likened it to waterboarding. Because, again, they're not able to close their mouths because of the bits makes that impossible. So that's what these horses are going to be experiencing. So it's something that no one ever thinks about. Um, but, of course, that's one of our major talking points 
um, talking about the the everyday cruelty uh, that these horses endure. Um, of course, I can get into the killing, but I'm sure you have some follow up questions. Yes, many of them. <laughs> but first, let's go back to what you said about breaking the horse. That is something we have heard before from watching a Western movie or maybe what's popular right now is that Yellowstone uh, TV series. So what is that about? How do we break a horse, the spirit of a horse? Yeah, well, uh, you know, as far as the, the, the specific steps that they, that they take, I, I, I'm not entirely well versed on that. Um, but of course, this is just all part of the domestication process, right? It's the same thing we do with all domesticated animals. We have to make them pliant and submissive, docile. We have to tame them, take away that spirit, take away their autonomy, right? In nature, horses are fully autonomous beings. Um, but of course, that wouldn't work. You have to be able to control them. It's all about control. And so um, the, the breaking process, again, the, and how they go about doing it, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure it is cruel in and of itself. But uh, the end result is that you have, um, well, in theory, a pliant and submissive animal. So then uh, you can go about and do what you want with that, that animal. Um, but it's, um, it's not perfect. Uh, it's not a perfect system. Uh, we see in the race charts, of course, I review the charts every single day. Um, and they're kind of like little box scores for the, the betters. Um, but in there, there are chart notes for each of the horses. And uh, often I'll see, especially with two-year-olds who are under the whip for the very first time, um, they were fractious in the gate. They were unruly. They were difficult to load. These are the, the terms and the phrases that the chart writer will use for some of these horses because the, the taming process has not been completed at that point. So, um, again, this is just uh, another example of how they take away uh, the horse's um, uh, autonomy and, and, and true nature. And I guess the horses we see on the tracks are like the, the elite, the tip of the iceberg, that um, behind every horse we see on the track, there are many others that went through the same horrific training but were not selected as champions. Would that assessment be uh, correct? That's a very, very good point, Ryan. So we we do have we do know how many horses are registered to race each year. So for just thoroughbreds, for example, it's roughly around eighteen thousand or so. They in a very telling uh, turn of, of phrase, they use the they use full crop, the number of new horses coming into the system each year, and, and indeed it is a crop, right? Um, but we don't we have no idea how many potential racehorses are bred each year. No idea. Um, of course, there's no tracking going on. They don't want the public to know how many of these animals don't even get that far. And then even if they are even if they are registered to race, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to end up in a race. Some of them don't make it to the track. So um, those are the discarded, the throwaways. And um, for some, it's the slaughterhouse. Uh, for others, um, you know, perhaps an early euthanasia before they even have a chance to live at, at all. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very good point. Uh, there are so, so many uh, untold horses out there that, um, that, again, it's all about trying to find the next champion, right? 
And, and there's about 100 tracks in the U.S. that operate consistently, consistently, um, not all throughout the whole year. And then there's over 100 training tracks. Over, over 200, over, actually. Over 200 yeah. training tracks. And there's also horse racing at over 100 state and county fairs. So there's a lot of racing. There's a lot of horses in the system. But we can't, like Patrick said, track every single horse. Um, there's just, you know. They, we get a lot of information, but we can't, you know, obtain all of that information. And who is participating to this um, economic activity? Can anyone decide to breed a horse and train that horse to uh, become a horse racing um, champion? And, you know, I, I want to have an idea of who are the people behind the industry And what is the profit that they're making and uh, what drives uh, their, uh, uh, their ambitions here? Sure. So it's a spectrum. We have um, at the very top, you know, wealthy individuals, uh, celebrities are involved uh, often. Uh, Bill Parcells, a famous football coach, uh, is, is a, uh, also a famous thoroughbred owner. Um, uh, there are there's a lot of money in the, you know in the Middle East and in, in Asia, um, but then all the way down to the other end of the spectrum, we have um, people who are just living uh, week to week and just trying to eke out a living. Um, so it, it you know runs the whole uh, the whole spectrum here. We have um, you know some stables uh, have maybe a hundred or a hundred plus horses. Uh, others will only be uh, only race maybe a handful of horses at a time. Um, there are what, what's called syndicates. So for a, a small buy-in, uh, anyone can own a part of a, a racehorse. It's something that the industry has tried to promote and market in recent years to try to uh, generate more interest among the uh, the public. Um, and that's that's exactly what they say. Look, you know, for a very small investment. You can be part of the action here and you can own uh, a share of a racehorse. Uh, so, you know, runs the whole gamut. It reminds me of the fur industry. You have on one side this high-end luxury product. And then on the flip side, you have the most horrific um, exploitation of animal that you can find. And th this is... The, the same you know situation the same dynamic here mm -hmm. because when i think about horse racing i think about the royalty i think about you know the queen um mm -hmm. that's why i i chose that introduction mm -hmm. i think about uh billionaires and it's something very you know luxurious and um that's what inspires me when i think about it sure but the cruelty aspect is very well hidden. So how do you explain the disparity between the image people have of horse racing and the reality of it? I mean, the, the kind of um, ho horrible details that you mentioned are on display for everyone to see, but everyone seems to be blind to what's happening on the track. So how do you explain that? That's an, uh, an excellent question. Um, it, it all comes down to marketing. It's brilliant marketing. 
it's been sold to us as a sport, indeed, the sport of kings, to use your royalty analogy. Um, we have, I, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I was a big, big sports fan. I had favorites in every sport. And I didn't follow horse racing year round, but because it was sold to me as just another sport, I watched Seattle Slough and Affirm going for the Triple Crown. I knew who Secretariat was. I admired Secretariat. I remember when ESPN named him the 35th greatest athlete of the 20th century. Right. Um, so that's what we're up against as activists. We need to uh, recondition the public mind. We need to get them to look through what they've been sold, what they've been told about horse racing and see it for what it actually is. And as you said, it's 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 right there for all to see. Um, I've got a page on the website, uh, The Big Lie. And what other sport? And I list off the things that, that apply to horse racing, but apply to no other accepted sport on the planet. And, uh, you know, of course, it's not a sport. Of course, it's just exploitation of a of a weaker species uh, for for two dollar bets for gambling. Right. And so that's what our job as advocates is to is to get people to reassess, to look at it through a fresh lens. And we're confident that if they do and if they take into consideration the changes within just animal entertainment over the past decade with Ringland Brothers shutting down and SeaWorld in decline because of Blackfish, uh, with rodeo bands in multiple cities around the country. And now dog racing is on death's door. There are only two dog tracks left in the entire country. And in fact, dog racing is prohibited on moral grounds in 42 states. So we say to people, look, if, you're, if you think that dog racing is immoral or, or unethical or inhumane, uh, then why is there any difference or what, what is the difference? How can you justify horse racing? And, and uh, I, I think that if you see that, if you, if you look at it from that perspective, um, it, you know, it should be clear to, to most people. And I think that um, because most of us only a lot, there's horse racing in 38 states. So I think most of us, most people that I know or only know about the Triple Crown. So they know about Kentucky Derby Day. They know that there's parties and they know about that. And I also think that's why horse racing kind of flew under the radar for animal rights activists for so many years. You talked about fur. We've been fighting, educating, protesting fur since the 70s, you know, and maybe before that, um, as, as far as my knowledge goes back. But horse racing wasn't there. So I think that you know, we see these, you know, horses on TV for the Triple Crown for the Kentucky Derby, and we see that they're being treated like royalty, and they're being bathed and combed and kissed, and they have roses all over them. And I think even the activists were like, oh, those horses are probably fine, you know, until, you know, we came around and Patrick started to expose the truth. Um, but there's so much horse racing at such a lower level, right in a lot of our backyards that we don't even know about where these aren't champions, these horses aren't worth anything but $2,000 price tag, maybe, um, you know, and I think that that's another reason why it kind of, you know, people don't really pay attention. They're not all betting on it. It's not something, you know, that's happening everywhere. Well, let me ask this um, question, a bit of a challenging question. Is there any world in which horse racing would be ethical um would there be any version of horse racing where it would be considered um like something that does not harm horses or is it by its nature 
an activity that will only harm and victimize horses. It's the latter, clearly. So it's uh, what we say it's an inherently cruel and inevitably deadly. And that's something I would like to talk about is the, the death on and at the track. And um, so when we started, we decided we needed hard evidence, facts to go after this this behemoth of an industry. And I started filing FOIA requests with racing commissions immediately, trying to get information on the number of horses the and the details of those, of those deaths uh, around the country. It's something that uh, before we started, no one knew how many horses were dying at American tracks, let alone the circumstances in which they were dying. So since 2014, on our website, we have confirmed and documented almost 10,000 kills, 10,000 names, dates, locations, and details. We estimate, however, that over 2,000 horses are dying at U.S. tracks every year. Over 2,000, that's roughly six horses every day. Imagine that. Um, so, you know, to your question about is there a world where this could be made acceptable, if one horse dies, horse racing, if one horse dies, it is indefensible, right? And even if no horses died, the other attendant cruelties that I spoke about would still exist. Um, they are not allowed to be horses. They're not allowed to be what nature intended. Um, it is inherently cruel, as I mentioned. And as, uh, as far as the death at the track, it's something that um, most people think of, of a broken leg and uh, euthanasia, and, and that's and that's the death. And and although that does account for more than half of, of deaths at the track or on the track, they, are, they die in other various ways. We see them dying of a blunt force head trauma, for instance, from collisions from with other horses or the track itself. We see them dying of a, what's called a cardiovascular collapse or a sudden cardiac event. Uh, in essence, their hearts give out. These are animals, again, who are mostly still in puberty and adolescence, just keeling over and dying. We see them dying of pulmonary hemorrhage, which means that they bled out from their lungs. There's even a term that the racing industry uses. It's called exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage. They know what happens. It happens on a regular basis. They are they are racing so hard and so fast that there, there is a certain amount of bleeding in their lungs. And if that bleeding becomes too much, they will literally bleed out because of it. Um, I see on the charts all the time, horses return bleeding from the nostrils or, or, or just a simple bled. And that means that the, the, there's bleeding in the lungs. That's how it manifests itself. Um, we see them dying of broken necks. We see them dying of severed spines. We see them dying of ruptured ligaments. So it's not just the broken legs, but the broken legs uh, alone. Um, if you if you take some time and 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 read our website, you'll see it's it's all in the details, right? It's all in the descriptions of those of those broken legs and you know multiple uh, fractures, compound, comminuted, which means it's shattered into many pieces open fractures, which means that the, the bone broke through the skin. Um, it's, it's, it's horrific in a word. Uh, and, and, and this is happening every single day, not just on American tracks, but on tracks across the world. Uh, they also die back in their stalls. Again, these are animals who are mostly still in puberty and adolescence, uh, in between races, so still very much active, dying <clears throat> quite painfully often back in their stalls from things like colic 
uh, an abdominal affliction or laminitis, excruciating inflammation in the feet. They die of uh, pneumonia or respiratory other respiratory infections. Um, sometimes on the on the FOIA reports that I get, <clears throat> it'll simply say found dead in the morning. Quote found dead in the morning. Again, uh, these are animals two, three, four years old. So uh, again, it's 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 impossible to defend to justify. This is the 21st century. Uh, this was a, a 20th century gambling business. Even though it was sold as a sport, in the end, it's about gambling, right? And for decades, the horse racing industry had a virtual monopoly on legal gambling in this country. That and dog racing, of course. Um, <clears throat> today, there's no excuse. If you want to gamble, then go to a casino, play the lottery, or pick up your phone, as you can in 30-plus states around the country now, and bet on real sports involving autonomous human beings, basketball, football, baseball, no excuse. Um, so this is the 21st century. Um, and, and our message is very simple, enough, enough. And there must be also doping going on uh, with those horses. Uh, if there is doping with um, uh, athletes, human athletes, then there must be something like that with mm. horses um do we know if there's any kind of cheating going on horses being injected with chemicals uh to make certainly them, uh, yes. certainly uh yes of course there's doping and there's always they're always going to try to find an edge just like you said with human sports um but there is a distinction to be made ryan between doping and drugging Uh, violations. Doping is illegal substances. And, and over the years, I've seen uh, cocaine, Viagra, um, uh, I think it's demorphine, which is more powerful than morphine. Uh, it's frog juice is the, uh, the term that they use for it. It comes from the backs of frogs in South America. Um, caffeine, I've seen all kinds of drugs or, or, you know, as far as doping is concerned, but that is not as common as what you see in, in, in the reports every day about drug overages. These are legal medications, uh, that there's just too much in the, in the horse's system. So the goal, of course, is to numb the pain, mask injury and, and keep them out on the track. Cause if they're not racing, they're not earning. So the drugging and doping is, is a big part of this. But, uh, unfortunately, I think it gets outsized attention. In the media and among the public, uh, there's a little too much focus on it. And the suggestion is uh, that it could be cleaned up, right? Like baseball with steroids, we can we can do something about the drugging and doping. And in fact, there is a federal um, there was federal legislation passed in 2020, and it created this new authority. It's called HISA, the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. And their, their mandate is primarily to police the drugging and doping at American tracks. But uh, it's a wrong, but it's not the worst thing that they do to horses. And you talked about secretary. And I'm also thinking about the veterinarians um, involved with this whole operation. And often when we see images of um, owners, uh, horse owners, They look like if they care about their horses. Why those people who are so close to the animal, who can, who are witnessing the pain uh, of the horse, why are they not um, deciding in greater number? And I don't know if there are some famous cases of people who have 
left this industry and um, became outspoken about it. But my question is, why are they not sensitive to that pain if they are so close to, to, to the creature? They know that horses uh, feel pain. They know that they are um, more complicated and, um, you know, that they're not uh, machines. So how do you explain that they're not on our side? You want to take that? No, you take that. <laughs> well, it's a great question. Of course, it's the million-dollar question that uh, we vegans ask all the time. How do you not see it? How do you not make that connection with a, a suffering being? And it's just, and and you could be a part of the solution, right? Simply by becoming vegan and just eschewing all animal products. And with with horse racing, I have found over the years, Ryan, that there are two types of people. And I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but uh, I, I think it's pretty it's pretty um, straightforward here. We have those who are uh, who truly believe that these animals are happy and truly believe that they love their horses and they care about their horses. And uh, they're the ones that are on social media when a horse breaks down and they're saying that, you know, I was bawling. When uh, when I found out that the horse broke down and um, they don't see it they, for them, there's this disconnect. They uh, they don't they don't see what we see. Right. Uh, there are there are others, though, who know exactly who they are and what they do and don't care for them. It's just a means to an end. Um, and they'll publicly they'll put on they'll say the right things. And, um, you know, we get this from the industry all the time when they're putting out their statements uh, when they're uh, under a certain amount of scrutiny. Um, nothing is more important than the safety and well-being of our, quote, equine athletes. Uh, that's all nonsense. Uh, it's uh, it's deception at its finest. Uh, so there are two types. And I've, I've dealt with many, many from both sides over the years. And in the former category, the ones who are um, who truly believe that there's nothing wrong with what they're doing, there's there's no getting through to them. You know, we see it for what it is. It's clearly exploitation, right? I mean, I, I don't know how you can, you know, you're, you're forcing that horse to do something, right? It's, and if that horse had his, uh, you know, had a, a choice in the matter, he wouldn't. He wouldn't want to be uh, locked up in a in a tiny stall and. And, and, and then thrust into a race every couple of weeks with a, a man sitting on top, wielding a whip, no less. Um, you know, but for the people who have been uh, in this industry for their whole lives, uh, it's it's a self-delusion is what it is. And uh, so those are the, the two types that we see. And um, as far know, as um, the owners of the horses from what our insiders or former people that work with us, they tell us that the owners don't see their horse. They don't visit their horse. Their horse is a machine for them. It's a money-making machine or whatever. So, and you're talking, you know, a lot of those, the ones you see are those, you know, high level, those, um, you know, big race days, triple crown days, all of that. You'll see the owner in the winter circle. You don't see a lot of that at the lower tracks. Um, and the veterinarians, it's a job. They're compromised and that's what they're doing. Um, Patrick talked about Craig Kolakowski's, um, the, the veterinarian's testimony at the, the Senate hearing. And um, he did start out and he, I think mm -hmm. in his, and that can be found on our YouTube, is his testimony. He talked about how he went to the racetrack to be a veterinarian there and he couldn't do it. 
he walked away, um, but so many others and, you know. Um, yeah, so he gets it, but the others it. don't. The others, yeah. uh, for them, it's just, a, it's a revenue stream. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's a job. They do what the trainers want. Yeah. The trainers want injections. They, mm. you know, they work together. Um, you know, there's, there's private vets, there's track vets, you know, they're just part of the industry. So, you know, they're going to do what they do. I feel like for some of them, it's also almost like a religion. You know, it's intergenerational. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. a family That's tradition. True. And mm -hmm. when they talk about horse racing, it's almost like their spirituality or, or something. And um, they will have, you know, sculptures of horses everywhere. And um, they're very proud of it. But they're the bad guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i think that they see horses as like this uh this sexy you know spiritual being and and but they care about how the horse makes them feel mm -hmm. not about how the horse feels ever mm -hmm. the horse makes them feel good they love seeing the beauty of the horse makes them feel good but they're not seeing what they, but and like mm -hmm. you say for the tradition well, my father did this, my grandfather did this, and his father did this. And this is, we've raised horses forever. And, um, you know, and and I think they know at their core somewhere, hopefully, that these horses belong together and they shouldn't be, you know, created for suffering. But they don't see that, mm -hmm. I'm sure. I, I want to talk about the gambling aspect of it, because that makes the whole issue even more inferior infuriating uh, you know I have it's an issue I found um, I, I'm very passionate about the whole issue of gambling because first of all it's um, something run by by the state um, also it is at the center of our most pressing issues of social inequality uh, who is the biggest clientele of uh, the gambling, the lottery, the, the betting world. Uh, it's mm -hmm. minorities. It's low-income people who are um, trapped in an um, addiction mind frame, uh, in the addiction uh, sickness. And I've, I've heard of one person who was addicted to um, gambling on the horse tracks. And, you know, it's the stories you've heard before, uh, missing the birthdays, um, asking for money from their uh, family members. Um, it's misery um, personified. Um, and I wonder who are the people, uh, who are the consumers of the show of horse racing? I guess there is this part of, you know, part of them is... Um, the people who are addicted to gambling, uh, the people who this industry is preying on. Um, there are also the the richest, you know, the the, the uh, royalty and the billionaires we we mentioned. Um, am I missing another, um, you know, slot of the population here? Uh, sure. So uh, I'm glad you brought up the, the economics because that's a huge part of this story and something that most people are totally unaware of. <clears throat> Horse racing in America is largely being propped up by taxpayer subsidies. 
some 75% of the industry would collapse virtually overnight, if not for this corporate welfare, massive corporate welfare. To use New York State, our own state, as an example, um, there are 11 tracks, seven harness, and four thoroughbred. If not for this money, which amounts to some $230 million per year in taxpayer money, that set, uh, nine of those 11 tracks would have shuttered years ago. They've amassed some $3 billion in total corporate welfare since they, the program began around 2004. It's the same thing in Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, Louisiana, right down the line. And the way it worked is uh, around the turn of the century, horse racing was finding more and more difficult to compete with casinos and state lotteries. This is before sports betting, mind you. Um, and of course, they had a monopoly on, on gambling, as I mentioned, for decades, and now they're crying that they can't compete. So they went to state legislatures and they said simply, look, if you don't help us here, if you don't give us a leg up, you are going to be responsible for putting so many thousands of people out of work. Uh, these numbers, by the way, they pluck out of thin air, these jobs jobs numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother issue. Um, and so back then it was an easy vote for state legislatures. They didn't want to be on the wrong side of a jobs issue, so they voted these subsidies in. Only recently, in the past few years, has uh, this started to get more attention. First, the governor of Pennsylvania at the time, Governor Wolf, uh, put it as part of his budget, a proposal to take $200 million annually that Pennsylvania horse racing was receiving and apply it to college scholarships for Pennsylvanians. Uh, here in New York, we were part of a coalition that introduced legislation to take the subsidies away from New York horse racing. Uh, all state-sanctioned gambling, whether it's casinos or lotteries or, or sports betting or horse racing, is supposed to, in theory, support education, school children, right? So we are literally cheating school children in New York out of $1 billion every four years. Imagine how many new teachers we could be, we could hire, lunch programs we could fund, infrastructure we could repair. It's mind boggling. So you take the cruelty component out of it entirely. It's a no brainer. Stop propping up this dying industry. Um, as far as the typical better, um, the, 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 the demographics are skewing very, very poorly for horse racing and it's not going to get any better. Uh, the typical horse player, this is the lifelong gambler, is a 65-year-old guy, right? Uh, they're not they're not being replaced by the younger generations. And, and the reason for that is twofold. Yes, there is more competition for the gambling dollar. Um, as mentioned, uh, sports betting is sweeping the country. And, you know, Gen X, uh, millennials, or Gen Z, I should say, millennials, they're the, you know, they're just going to pick up their phone and bet on basketball, football, and baseball. But the other component is changing sensibilities. So you don't have to be vegan or an animal rights activist to look at this and say, why Why would I want to bet uh, on a, an activity that requires an animal to be whipped when I can go to a casino or um, bet on my phone, uh, basketball, football, what have you. So uh, clearly long term, this is very, very bad for horse racing and it's not going to improve. So it's our job to get those subsidies reversed and take that money away from them. And uh, we would be helping school children and at the same time, save be saving horses. Yes. And also saving those people who are, who were, uh, who are trapped by their addiction. I, I think that um, a great number of uh, horse racing tracks have introduced 
uh, slot machines to to their you know whole services provided. And the slot machines are the subsidy. That is the subsidy. So that, that's how oh, okay. So yeah. instead of um, the whole percentage going back to the state, a certain se a section of it is being uh, siphoned off for the horse racing operation. Hmm. So that's how that's how they receive their subsidies typically is through slot machines or other yeah, table I mean, games. So at those at those tracks that are in New York State, there there's one thoroughbred track, but the red the harness tracks have the 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 casino, the racino we call it, um attached. And all of the people are at the slot machines and there's nobody watching racing. Mm. So that and we did uh like a photo essay of mm. that where we went into all of those tracks, we sent people in and to take pictures of those stands and nobody was there. So that's why there's a subsidy. So it's kind of like you know, this there's it's gambling, it's a gambling business. So you see at like tracks like Saratoga, it's more of a social scene. Yes, people are gambling, but there's a lot more people in those grounds that aren't gambling. They're, you know, having picnics. There's it's just a different, different, whole, whole totally different type of setup. Um, but then the smaller tracks around the country, the Mountaineer and the Thistledown, those are the ones without even the casinos attached. Those are all you see as gamblers sitting there. Those are lower level tracks. There's no fanfare. There's no roses. There's no celebrities. These are lower level tracks. And that's the kind of clientele that they have to answer that question. Um, but those are subsidized Um too. So they're they are bringing in more gambling, um, but with when Greyhound Racing was kind of coming to an end, they did a lot of decoupling, so they took away that um, connection. So in New York State, and I don't know in all all of the subsidy states, but they can't have that casino without the racing. So that's like the deal. If you want to open that casino, you have to have racing too. So it's another way to keep racing alive and create more gambling i guess too <laughs> <laughs> um i think we we did a great job at describing the problem uh in details and now i want to talk about what we can do to to resolve what is happening and you mentioned many of the actions you have taken but um i want to start with the origins of um, your passion uh for fighting horse racing so how did it start how did you take an interest um and you know how did you create um, um uh, horse racing wrongs sure so it started because i was i was writing a blog for our local newspaper here in upstate new york the albany times union and it was an animal rights blog i was trying to cover all the various animal issues when i started researching horse racing two things jumped out first there was a dearth of information Again, no one knew how many horses were dying. No one knew about the other kinds of cruelties. And I knew instinctively that this is bad. This is cruel. Again, I was vegan at the time and an animal rights activist. Um, and second, I found that there was no group, big or small, committed to this issue. Um, we had protesters, as Nicole mentioned, in front of Ringland Brothers for you know, going back decades. Uh, there were fur, uh, you know, groups dedicated to fur and factory farming and animal testing. Dog racing had great 2K. Horse racing, there was nothing in this country. So I saw a big void in the animal rights community and decided I was going to try to fill it. I didn't know anything about horses. 
because I didn't grow up with horses. Uh, the only thing I knew about horse racing was as a sports fan growing up. Um, so I really had to immerse myself in the issue and, and had to learn very quickly um, about horses and horse racing. So that's that's how it began. And then I came along yeah. <laughs> and I, I went to my first protest and fell in love with protesting. So we when as Patrick was, you know, gathering this information and putting this data together, I was like, okay, we need to start protesting. And then we started because we we lived near Saratoga and I went there as a child every year with my parents and as an adult until I went vegetarian. I was like, there's animals here. I probably shouldn't be here anymore. Um, but then I didn't know why until um, Patrick and I started working together. And then um, I found all of these activists, um, local vegans and people that weren't vegan, they hated the track. And now they're learning why, you know, they shouldn't go, why they hate it, you know, or, or more reasons to hate it. And then they started coming too. So then I, you know, said, okay, we need to do this across the country and then, you know, be able to have posters and signs and guidance and take everything that we've learned protesting at one of the biggest tracks, the oldest tracks in the country, and um, and help people all over the country, help activists. And Nicole has really taken the organization to a whole new level. Um, we are national, obviously, and we've sponsored protests in over 20 states, over 25 tracks, I believe. We've had over um, 70 protests across the country this year. Just this year, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she's being a little bit humble here, but when we started at Saratoga, when Nicole started with the protests, organizing protests, uh, we had maybe 10 was, people. There was five people. Five in the first, first year. Um, I drove home crying before, because the people were so mean. Yeah, before um, COVID. And this is not a major <laughs> metropolitan area. It's Albany's the capital, but it's yeah. not New York City by any stretch. Before COVID, we were drawing 100 protesters for the Traverse Stakes, which mm-hmm. is the, the big race at Saratoga each August. 100. And 75 um, every week. We, we actually, and Nicole, with some help from city activists in New York, uh, we mobilized 150 for the Belmont Stakes back in 2018 or 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID obviously has put a, uh, you know, a crimp on some of this. Um, um, I think we found not just with us that it's more difficult to get people to come out, um, but we still draw and we still have a, a real dedicated, passionate group, not just locally, but around the country. Mm-hmm. And it's all uh, because of Nicole's hard work. Um, what else? I was going to say something else and you embarrassed me. Um, so mm-hmm. um, back to that, we had five at our first one. And then I went, I cried and went home. And then I said, we're going back. And then we had 20 and then we just kept Mm. building. Um, But the most important thing, and what I like to tell all, every vegan that's listening or at home, you have to be a voice for the animals every single day. It's not enough just to be vegan. And I think a lot of us say, well, I'm vegan, so I'm saving X amount of number of animals. But that's, all you're saving, you need to save more. And those are the kinds of people that are, who are content to share yeah. recipes and talk about restaurant offerings. And hey, that's all fine. But please make you have to take the next step, place. right? Um, because the animals, as Nicole said, desperately need us. And mm-hmm. um, so the, and we, we feel that um, uh, 
if you think back in our history, every great social justice movement has started in the streets, right, with protest, whether it's uh, gender rights, uh, sexual orientation, civil rights, obviously, right down the line. So animal rights is no different. You have to you have to voice your outrage. You have to let the the average person know there's something wrong here. Yeah, and educate, this is educate, why educate. educate. So go ahead. And one thing we um, we found early on as we started protesting here were regular everyday people were contacting us and saying, I want to protest. I hate this. And now I know what's happening to the horses. And then, and they weren't vegan at the time. And now they're standing next to vegans. We're talking about vegan stuff and where we're going to go eat vegan food after. And they became vegan. So as you know, we go through, we, I go through on social media and things. I'm like, that person wasn't vegan when we met them and now they are and their whole family's vegan. And it's just kind of, you know, when you bring the attention to the suffering of one animal to people, then they kind of go home and they say, Oh, what am I going to, what am I eating? I'm eating an animal. So you start really bringing Mm -hmm. that in. So it's, so it's satisfying in that way too. I think for us, you know, we always think we're not doing enough for animals every day, even though we try, we're doing things every day, but we think we're not doing enough for maybe chickens and, and cows and pigs and things like that every day. Um, we're both vegan for a long time, but, um, th- but that was, you know, that was part of it too. I'm so glad to hear you, to hear you uh, say that because that's the whole reason why I started this podcast. It's a call yeah. for action. So mm-hmm. Nicole, you mentioned how you were crying because of uh, some people, I guess, that were against your protests. Uh, what kind of um, opposition did you have and, and still have against your initiative? Um, I don't know if I understand the question. Well, what, like pushback. <laughs> oh, oh, pushback? Pushback, yes. oh, Pushback. So, well, that that was, okay, that was a long time ago. So there we were overpowered. So the, cor- the corner we were standing on, the five of us, or six of us, I think it was five, um, they were there's a stoplight and they have a traffic. Well, I don't know someone who crosses. Well, to, to, let me preface what. Anyway. So it's really important to know that um, for people who don't understand horse racing, Saratoga is one of a handful of tracks. We're talking over you know about a hundred tracks nationally. Only a handful are true draws that truly are mm-hmm. self sufficient. Uh, popular destinations and Saratoga is one of them. So uh, it just happens to be in our backyard. So when Nicole talks about the masses of people coming across the street, you have to understand if you go to some of these uh, average tracks around the country, you don't see these kinds of people there. They're not there for social socialization. Right. Um, But there was a lot of people. So there's only a few of us standing on the corner. We were across the street. So they were just kind of yelling at us like, you don't know what you're talking about and stuff like that. And, um, so it was hard because and I've done, you know, I did all kinds of protests for Free Friday and I did, you know, um, all the different circuses and everything like that. So that was just tough because I wasn't ready. You know, I did, wasn't ready for this, it, it, but it was a learning experience. So then as we just kept going, we do, it depends on how we're protesting, I feel like. Um, we usually send out leafleters to talk to people. Um, we set up a camera. You can see that on our YouTube. We set up a camera and interviewed people. They didn't know who we were, but just asking them like why they why they're here and did they know that horses are dying and did they know about the cruelty? So that was good. Um, so we get, you know, people are gonna they tell you to get a job. You know, it's a, the same old you know stories. Get a life, get a job, and all that. But no matter what, 
people say when we're to us, it's like sticks and stones, right? They're never going, we're never going to suffer as much as the horses. So I always tell everyone, you know, even when I'm asking people to call up the governor's office or call their legislator, just tell yourself it's for the horses and it just flows out. It's so much easier. So I think we do get a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of people that say things. And I think Nicole is, uh, is she's got a, she's got a great uh, line that she uses. Um, you know, look at in any human activity, there's always going to be, you know, human um, uh, uh, rivalries, human uh, conflict. Uh, and that goes with animal rights also. There's there's we, we've seen it, even though we share values, there are still people out there that we don't necessarily like. Right. Uh, but Nicole has a great approach to it. She says, you ask yourself two questions. Does it help the horses and does it move the mission forward? Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then don't waste your time on yeah. it. Just move. Don't get on and, fights, and it's, fights it's, on social media. Don't fight yeah. with the people walking by you yeah. because the person behind them may be the person you reach. Right. So, yeah, and that's why I so ask my It's a my terrific whole, approach. That's what I tell my whole team, too. It's, it's challenging at times, right? We, You know, you, you know I'm sure, <laughs> um, to just kind of – let things go, let yeah. things slide, but uh, it's it's all about the horses in the end, right? And and or, or animals in general. The truth is on your side. Right. You can't lose. So I will remember that. I mean, it's a <laughs> it's a terrific uh, philosophy, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> okay. So if I am a vegan or someone who opposes um, horse racing, and it's happening. Um, in, in my locality, in where I am, where I live, mm-hmm. what can I do? Can I contact you guys? Do you have um, mm-hmm. things set up uh, for me maybe to start a protest? Um, will you help me in my action? Um, so, yes. So, yeah, so um, you, go, you can go to our website, horseracingwrongs.org. If you scroll down on the front page, there's a contact form. Is a contact mm-hmm. form there? I think it is. Um, <laughs> and then you can email me or find me on social media. You can email me at Nicole at horseracingwrongs.com. That's the .com. I don't know why. Um, and then we will, you know, we will set you up with, I'll send you out leaflets and posters and we'll help you with your Facebook event page. We'll get an event page up on our website. We'll give you tips and tricks and everything you need um, so you're not doing it alone yeah, for your first talking points for the media mm-hmm. we we handle everything press, press releases um yeah, yeah nicole does a, a terrific job so um and and you know it doesn't just it doesn't have to be just uh you know protesting there are other ways to to get involved right? yeah we do yes and also something that um our maryland organizer jennifer sully has been doing a lot is she does a lot of outreach at pimlico Racecourse when it's not even open it's one of the triple crown tracks um, and it's in in a neighborhood, which yeah, Saratoga is in a neighborhood too, but not all tracks are like that. But they stand with signs and leaflets and they talk to people at the red lights and they just hand out leaflets and just really just talk to people and have conversations. Um, the Maryland State Fair, we, we do that too, or any fairgrounds where there's horse racing. No signs, no me- no megaphones, just talking to people saying, you know, horse racing happens here and um, just trying to educate everyone especially in those subsidy states but every you know about the subsidies but just educate as many people as possible the more gambling dollars we can take away the more people that will get upset and will take 
that next step to talk to their legislators about it and educate them. And that's, that's what it's, it's just, it's grassroots all the way. And, and, and just, just so you know, we, we are, we are winning. We are winning. So since the year 2000, this can be found on our website, 43 tracks around the country have closed. So the industry is contracting as we talk. Uh, all the metrics are down across the board. As I mentioned, the demographics are really, really bad going forward. Um, I had ex- uh, conversations with editors at the Washington Post and the Philadelphia Inquirer, and shortly thereafter, both editorial boards came out to end horse racing, not to reform it, but to end. That's a sea change from where we began. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, we were told, hey, you guys are, you're crazy. You're radical extremists. You're never going to shut this industry down. It's too big, too powerful, too much money, too much history. Um, we are winning. Uh, there's no question in my mind. And you look at dog racing and where that is, uh, we will be there someday. And it's just a question of how fast we can get there and how many of these these beautiful animals' lives we can save in the process. Yeah, we we should not wait. You know, those horses no. are waiting for us to, Absolutely. to save them, Absolutely. to take action. Six horses every day are dying. Like we, they can't wait any longer. So um, if you, if you want to help, please, uh, you know, reach out to us. And Nicole, uh, she's, again, she's terrific. And, and um, you know, there, there are many, many ways that, you know, to, to join the cause. All yeah. the animals. Every yes, chance absolutely. Chance yeah. yeah, go vegan, right? <laughs> <laughs> and... I, I would like to hear you talk about maybe quickly uh, the situation outside of the U.S. Um, I guess for some countries like the U.K., um, horse racing has a bigger cultural value uh, than um, elsewhere. What is the situation um, at the international level? Well, horses are suffering and dying everywhere. That's one of the uh, the mis- misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often hear that uh, is the problem is American horse racing. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they die everywhere. Um, we have uh, partnered uh, with uh, Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses in Australia mm-hmm. and New Zealand, Animal Aid in the UK. I believe there's a group in Italy that we've uh, we've we've uh, yeah. had contact with. Um, we've had. Um, yeah, shared uh, shared actions, haven't we, mm-hmm. with with them? So, but Nicole can speak to to, to that. Um. Well, they do their own. Um, they don't have the, uh, from my knowledge, they don't have the FOIA. Um, yeah, they don't. They don't seem to have access the same yeah. access to information. They that find we do. information, um, you know. But we do we do work with them on on actions. We meet up with them a couple times a year to kind of like see how things are going on their end, and if um, we pick each other's brain and have any new ideas. Um, but yeah, I think the people in the Amer- the apologists in the American horse racing industry will say, oh, we need to start doing it like, you know, they do over in Europe because there's no horses dying there, but they simply can't find the information. So they are dying. They are dying yeah. And you'll see during, um, you know, those big races in the UK and in Australia, they, if you go on animal aid and, um, and CPR, you will find that they are reporting on those because right. they are, you know, they're, Yep. They're getting exposed at that level and slaughter um, horse slaughter. We didn't talk about that yet. You can talk about that if you want. And horse slaughter mm. is happening in those countries too. So these horses are being tossed away, you know, three, four, five, six year old horses are being sent to slaughter when they're no longer useful. 
Yes, I guess they're they're not profitable to keep alive anymore. That's the uh, right. That's how people it's, think. Uh, in short, it's horse racing's retirement program as a slaughterhouse. Um, we estimate that uh, more than half of spent or simply no longer wanted racehorses end up in what can only be described as equine hell. These are uh, prey animals, flight animals. And um, when they get into these slaughterhouses after being trucked uh, sometimes 28 to 36 hours without food, water, or rest, um, in America, we don't slaughter right now currently on U.S. soil. So we ship them to Canada and Mexico to be slaughtered. And they get into those slaughterhouses and the sights, sounds, and smells of death are all around them. Um, of course, all slaughter is 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 horrific. Uh, but for these flight animals, it's, it's, it's even more so, if you can imagine, because they are desperately trying to escape. Um, and often that, that, uh, that shot that's supposed to render them unconscious or to outright kill them, uh, that takes multiple tries because the animals are, are flailing about. Uh, there's video, undercover video from Canada depicting just that. Um, and then, of course, they are shackled and hung upside down and, and slashed through their carotid artery, bled out and butchered uh, for their meat. And um, yeah, so the bottom line is that it's, it's, it's one final profit on these horses' heads. There's not enough space or money um, to take care of all the animals that they're producing every year. And so this is what, what happens. That's the end result. We're talking multiple thousands, multiple thousands annually of uh, former American racehorses, um, again, landing in equine hell at the end of their so-called careers. Horses being live exported to Asia um, for human consumption, just like all of the horses. Unfortunately, that- yeah. Unfortunately, there's a demand for horse meat um, in Europe and Asia. And, uh, you know, if there's a demand, they're going to find a way to meet that demand. And um, so, uh, you know, we we find it uh, as Americans and obviously we're, we're vegan, but uh, just speaking for the, the average American, it's, uh, you know, horse meat is, um, um, is, is taboo. Horror. Right. Right. But uh, in other countries, it's the same as eating you know, cows or pigs. So, um, yeah, that's that's the that's the bottom line with these 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 animals who are given these whimsical names and once cheered on uh, to end in uh, in this this uh, misery. Horrible. Yeah, they they need to maximize uh, the revenues at any cost. They don't care right. about the cruelty right. they inflict on animals. They don't care about uh, creating addiction in uh, their locals and. Uh, destroying their the economy um the the it's i mean the, there is no redeeming quality to this industry not at all back no. to your question about the owners and veterinarians i mean that just explains it they're just a cog in the machine they're just you know a money maker and then when they're done they just move on to the next uh, next, next course, course up i mean yeah. think about this right so you know we you know i mentioned earlier and the big lie and go through the you know, what other sport does this happen? Imagine uh, an athlete, a human athlete dying in a basketball game or a football game. Um, not only would that shock the whole country, um, but obviously the game would end, right? Not in horse racing. They get that dead animal off the track yep. and the entertainment goes on. The next race, next horse up. Imagine that. So it's obscene. There's no other words to, to use. It's obscene to call 
horse racing a sport? Um, and speaking of deaths, you know, we hear about that often from the apologists that, uh, well, human athletes suffer injuries. Um, horse racing kills as many in one day, in one single day, th than the four major professional sports leagues in this country have in their collective 400 plus year history. And one day, horse racing kills more Imagine than that. I think three basketball, football, baseball, and hockey. Three athletes have died in a game in that collective 400 plus year history. And horse racing kills about six every single day. So let's stop calling it a sport, folks. Yeah, the more I think about it and the more truly it looks like a a symbol of animal exploitation, the cheering, the obscenity that is visible to all, but invisible, um, the the dying in the tracks, like you said, and continuing the show at any cost. I mean, the closest thing to to that would be the corrida in, in Spain, I guess. Yes. Yep. Full public display, right? And I talk about that when we were whipping. Imagine. So if you saw someone whipping his dog in the park, you would call 911. And that person would be arrested on the spot in many states for a felony, animal cruelty. Mm -hmm. And yet at the racetrack, it's part of the tradition. And it goes on in full public view. And let's make no mistake, whipping hurts horses. It hurts horses. And, and I've got quotes on the website from people in the industry. Of course, yeah. it hurts horses. And and they're whipping the horses the most at the moment the people are cheering. Right. They want their horse to win, the ticket they have in their hand, and they're cheering. And that's when most of the whipping is happening, those last couple seconds right. before the horses cross the finish line. Right. So they're cheering and they're just – and that, you know, right. and I know that from, from doing it myself and being there and witnessing it as a child. And, and um, you know, that was um, – it's a benefit – now that I, you know, I can look back and I don't, I, I always say, don't feel bad because you weren't vegan. Don't feel bad because you took part. You're not now. Don't waste time and energy on that. Use that to your advantage. Use it to how you can change people. Use it to, um, you know, so I know that that's, that's when, you know, the horses are being beaten the most is when people are cheering and they don't see it right? because they're so I selfish. Disconnect. They're they're They just want their horse to win so they can go to the window and collect their winnings. Yep. So. Well, um, I truly love your optimism, um, even uh, after describing um, in details what is happening uh, in the world of horse racing. I'm coming from this conversation with a sense of, you know, I can do something about it. And this mm -hmm. is not a tragedy. This can be avoided. And... I guess, yeah, it's because of your optimism uh, in in the face of that uh, evil. Have you ever met uh, one of those horses, maybe saved and uh, cared for in a sanctuary? We have, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, we have um, some people that we work with that have rescued and, and I get pictures and I get video. So and that's really we, nice. We, 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 we visited sanctuaries and... Um, yeah, we've had our spiritual moments with these yes. beautiful, and, um, intelligent animals. And uh, yeah, of course, we're, hey, look at, um, 
we're, we're I, in this to the very end and it's uh, horse racing is it's either going to, you know, I'm either going to go first or horse racing is going to go first. But, uh, you know, this is, I've dedicated my life and Nicole has too, to, uh, to ending this. And um, I, I, I feel very confident that we will get there. And the reason why I'm so optimistic is even on my hardest days and we have hard days, mm-hmm. especially when FOIAs come in and we have to read that. That's those are the hardest days. But then I was I was taking a walk one day. I was having a really hard day. And then I realized that for I always use 150 years because that's how old Saratoga race course is a little bit over that now. But for over 150 years, these horses suffered in silence and died unnoticed. But because of the work we're doing and all of the people I'm grateful for every single I'm grateful for you and every person listening and everyone who has joined us, follows us on social media, whatever, um, who are opening their hearts to these horses. But because of all of these people that these horses are seen and they're loved and they're fought for every single day. So that just gives me hope because people care. It's, you know, when we started this, it was hard because we were like, are people going to care? Is this big enough for people to care about? Does it, it's in 38 states. So does everyone get touched by this? But I talk to people every single day and I answer my messages all the time. Um, So people feel sad. You can reach out to me and I'll make you feel better. But these animals are loved, they're seen, and they're fought for. And I do believe they know it. They know that we're out here for them. I do believe that, you know, they know it. And I hope that, you know, that that touches them. See, that's Mm going to make me cry. But, (laughs) but. It's, it is, it's, I think that we need to remember that and, and be grateful for all the people around us, the other humans that are fighting and working hard and trying to inspire the ones who maybe are afraid or there's a block, you know, to do it too and be their voice. Amazing. I think it's a great message to end the conversation, unless you had something more to say. No, I think that's terrific. And thank you for everything that you do. Yes, thank well, you so much. Let me thank you for. Uh, your work your inspiring work and for having accepted uh, to appear on the show and to share with listeners uh, what you're doing and your passion uh, for fighting against horse racing Uh, thank you so much thank you Ryan thank you it's great meeting you thank you everyone for listening I kindly invite you to share this podcast with the vegans you know let's encourage more people to take action Again, thank you so much for caring, and I will see you next Tuesday for a new episode.